Well, we're in the midst of a great series on the book of Hebrews. It's called Hebrews, the Glory of the New Testament. And really, uh, maybe we should better say that it's Hebrews, the glory of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The chief subject of the book of Hebrews is the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. And it's all about this great salvation that he has given to us. And as we've been in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, we see through the first couple of chapters that the subject is taken up with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let me just take a moment here and just point out how important it is that we lift our eyes beyond ourselves to Jesus. Many times when it comes to the Christian life, we have a tendency to look at the Christian instead of at Christ. God is not asking us to have faith in ourselves. He's calling us to have faith in Jesus. And many times we don't really understand who he is. We don't understand what he has already accomplished. And that's second subject, well, both subjects, both who he is and what he's accomplished, is the chief subject of the book of Hebrews. And that is at the center of the new covenant itself. Well, last time in this series, we were in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and the focus, again, has been Jesus himself, and what a great focus that is. At the beginning of that uh, chapter, by way of review, it was talking about how great this salvation is and commanding us not to neglect so great a salvation. And obviously, there is the definite possibility of neglect for the sinner, the one not in Christ and unsaved. The danger of neglect is great. They remain in their sins and face the wrath of God. For the saint, the possibility of neglect uh, is the problem of uh, not being able to enjoy the benefits of a present salvation. So the heart of the writer of Hebrews says this to the sinner, Don't let such a great Savior and great salvation pass you by. Jesus did it all for you. Look to him and believe. The consequences of failing to do so are catastrophic, judgment, condemnation, and death. Meanwhile, to the saint, the one who is in Christ, the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is saying, I don't want you to miss out on the full now benefit of this great salvation. Well, as Hebrews chapter 2 continued in verses 5 through 9, the focus on Jesus and the fact that as the Son of Man, he was made lower than the angels. I love what it says there in verse 9. It says, but we see Jesus. That's what I was talking about a little bit earlier, the importance of lifting our eyes to him. And uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And made as man, he was made lower than the angels. Yet as the Son of God, he is far higher than the angels being God himself. So why did Jesus humble himself like that? Well, it says in verse 9, the second part, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. The grace of God, tasting death. Now, death could not hold him. He is God himself. Death was conquered. He was raised from the dead. 
And then at the end of verse 9, it says, For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Jesus went through that experience of death for us. When you see that word, everyone, say, he did it for me. Well, today we want to pick it up in verse 10. And uh, let me read verses 10 through 18. And as we do, let's take a moment and turn to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you for such a wonderful salvation and a wonderful Savior. Father, we pray that by the Spirit you would turn the light on. Help us to see clearly. Lord, we cannot depend on our human understanding. It is so limited. But Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the spirit. And Father, as the word is brought forth today, I pray that you would, in my heart, in the heart of every person listening, just grant to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all of their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and high priest and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Well, as we move into verse 10, I just want to bring verse 9 again to focus. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Then in verse 10, it begins with the word for. And when you see the word for in this kind of a construct, it's giving us the reason behind the previous sentence or clause. So let me ask you this question. It says that Jesus, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Why would Jesus, why would the grace of God mean that he would have to taste death for everyone? That question, that vital question, is what we're going to explore here with uh, at the beginning of this podcast with close attention. We're going to be answering the reason why Jesus had to taste death by the grace of God for everyone. Six reasons I want to give you, and uh, they're right from this verse, 
Reason number one, it says it was fitting, meaning it was the right thing to do. In uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown, it says the whole plan was not only derogatory to, but highly becoming God, though unbelief considers it a disgrace. In other words, when we think about Jesus dying, why did he have to die? And why did he have to die a death on the cross? Well, it says here that it was fitting for God. As the commentator said, highly becoming to God. Well, that raises in our minds, well, why would it be fitting for God? Why would God think that way? Reason number two, for whom are all things and by whom are all things? You know, God himself is the source. God himself is the creator. God himself is the reason for everything. And so it is even in our salvation, our redemption, and our restoration. They must come from God. They cannot come from us. The solution to our dilemma, to our problem, is not ourselves. The solution is God-sized and belongs to God himself. Reason number three in bringing many sons to glory. Now, this is something I really appreciate so much because we really see the relational love of the Father in uh, bringing many sons to glory. And this really speaks of the relational aspect of God. God being our Father. Listen to this. Uh, It says in bringing many sons to glory. Now, you ladies, you're not excluded in this thing because in biblical language, when you see sons, it speaks of heirs. So it means that through the Son, Jesus Christ, Uh, Sons and daughters of God are made the rightful heir. And that's an encouraging thing. You know, in that ancient culture, in Eastern cultures, it is the really the males who uh, are the rightful heirs, and particularly the firstborn male. Well, because we're all in Christ, born in him, he is the firstborn male, and so we together enjoy being heirs with him. It says many sons to glory. Now, what what does it mean by to glory? Well, first of all, is the glory of sonship lost. And what I mean by that is the condition of everyone when they are born into this world. In Romans 3.23, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You go back to uh, Genesis chapter 3 and the fall and what happened there in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned against God. Uh, immediately they were uh, aware of being naked. And really what that means is stripped of the glory that they had in, that, in the beginning uh, with God, the way that God had made them in his image and likeness. And uh, there was something about uh, what happened in sin marring that creation that stripped man of that original glory. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read a little bit earlier, uh, but now we do not see all things put under him. In the beginning of the creation, God had placed all things in subjection under him. But when man did what he did in falling, he abdicated that uh, right of rulership. And uh, actually, Satan has become the prince of this world system. 
Well, it's also not just the glory of sonship lost, that's what was lost in the garden, but actually the glory of sonship restored. And um, what is this glory? In Romans chapter 9, verse 23, it says, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. You see, we share in God's glory. It says in several places in the scripture that we are partakers or sharers of the glory of God. Ephesians 3, 6 says of the promise. Colossians 1, 12 says of the inheritance of the saints in the light. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, of God's holiness. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, of the divine nature. We are sharers of God's glory. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 21, speaking of the glory of sonship, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Listen to this, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 21. Of the glory of God, Colossians 1.27 says this, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, that's Colossians 1.27. And in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 5b, that we might receive the adoption, the NIV says, full rights as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. So Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone in order to bring many sons to glory. Here's reason number four from verse 10, to make the captain of their salvation perfect. And that word captain is really, um, I don't think there's a word in English that really captures the sense of the Greek word, which really is two meanings together. The first meaning is, well, like we think of a captain, a leader, but it also brings in an element of a source. In Vine's Expository Dictionary, in defining this word in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, uh, they say the word suggests a combination of the meaning of leader with that of the source from whence a thing proceeds. That Christ is the prince of life signifies, as Chrysostom says, that the life he had was not from another. The prince or author of life must be he who has life from himself. Uh, Jesus um, said in John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this idea of a captain and a captain of our salvation is one who is both the leader and the source of our salvation. Reason number five behind why Jesus, the grace of God, would make it that Christ would have to taste death for everyone. It says to make 
the captain of their salvation, perfect, perfect. And the Greek word here is teleo, which means complete. And this Greek word comes up several times in the New Covenant. And it's extremely important to understand this word, teleu, which is uh, that Greek word here for perfect. What it means is the idea of bringing to full completion, completing everything, getting everything done. I like to think of Jesus and what he did both in his life and in his sacrifice and in his death and resurrection is sort of uh, there are all of these checks on a checklist of things that uh, would bring our salvation to the full measure. All sorts of things from the way he was conceived to the way he was born to the way he lived to the way he walked righteously and obeyed the father every moment of his life from the heart and all the way into his full obedience even to death on the cross. And then we get all the way through Jesus accomplishes all that and from the cross he says this it is finished. The Greek word for that is tetelestai which is a form of to tell of teleu, which means completed, never uh, perfectly, never more to be uh, done again. It is a perfect completion, and so uh, to make the captain of their salvation perfect doesn't mean to say that Jesus was in some way imperfect and had to be made perfect. What it meant was that Jesus, on every point, satisfied every check, 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 check check until it is finished check calvin said this to make perfect as a completed sacrifice legal and official not moral perfection is meant and so it just everything about hebrews goes through one thing upon another upon another and we see that jesus completes fulfills accomplishes all folks this is talking about the finished work of jesus christ so Jesus tasted death by the grace of God for everyone that he would be the captain of our salvation uh, and a complete and perfect captain of salvation. Reason number six behind that is through his sufferings. Now listen, the suffering of Jesus didn't make him a better person. Rather, in that big checklist I was talking about, it was what Jesus walked through to fulfill all. Think about the sufferings he went through, the insults, the rejection, the shame, the false accusation, the condemnation, the torture, the execution, the judgment, the death. We can see that this verse, verse this uh, verse, verse 10, is just packed with rich meaning to this vital question, the question of why would Jesus, by the grace of God, taste death? For everyone. Well, I hope that's uh, brought into a higher clarity, a higher definition for you as we have uh, walked through those very, very important reasons. And I'll tell you, as I as I think about that, my heart is just filled with awe and gratitude about Jesus. He did all that so that I would be the beneficiary of a great, perfect salvation, lacking nothing. 
that would bring me into the family of God. Well, as we continue in Hebrews chapter 2, in verses 11 through 18, it says that uh, both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And uh, one of the great things that Jesus accomplished was in making me and everyone in Christ a brother to him that he is not ashamed of. Verses 11 through 13 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother because he has sanctified us sanctified us. It says in verse 11 again, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Now, the word sanctify in the Bible has a very specific application, and I'm afraid that many people misunderstand this word sanctify and sanctification, and I get into this in much greater depth in a series that I have available on our website, dailyinchrist.org, called Living in the Reality of Perfect Sanctification. I get into the into this much more, but I'm just going to touch on it lightly. The idea of sanctify is to be set apart for God, to make holy. Jesus, the perfect captain of our salvation, is the one who sanctifies us perfectly. And then it says those who are being sanctified. Now, I, I want to note that I'm reading in the New King James, and, and uh, there is... Uh, Probably an error in the um, translation in saying being sanctified. It kind of gives a sense that we're, we're getting sanctified right now. But all of Hebrews, and especially Hebrews 10, makes it very clear that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all, we stand perfectly sanctified. And um, the King James, New American Standard, uh, ESV, and others say, and those who are sanctified. So it says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. And that uh, idea of all of one, the one who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, those of us in him, the NASB says of all of one, all of one father, or the ESV says all have one origin. You see, for those in Christ, our ancestry is no longer fallen first Adam, but holy last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that there are only two races of people in all of the earth? There are those who are in Adam, first Adam, and every person who is born into this planet, on this planet, was born into Adam. And that fall, born a sinner, born a loser, really, But for those who have been born again by the grace of God, they have died in Christ out of first Adam and have been born again into another Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you've got those, again, two races of humanity, those in Adam and those in Christ. We share our ancestry now, those of us in Christ, not in Adam, but in Christ. That's who we really are. We are in the redeemed line of Jesus Christ and no longer in the sinful line of Adam. And all of this is made possible because of our union with Christ. Now, there's more about this in Romans chapter 6. 
1 Corinthians 1.30 says that of God are you in Christ. God the Father placed us, baptized us into Christ, and we are in union with him, and therefore united with him in his death and his resurrection. We are all of one being in Christ. I can't say this too much. The Bible uses the phraseology in Christ or in him over 100 times, and they speak about who you really are if you are in Christ. And speaking of sonship, because we are in Christ, we are in the same family. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says this, The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, Remember, we get all because we are in Christ. And therefore, our ancestry, our family line is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus' Father, God the Father, is also our Father. And you know what that makes Jesus? Our brother. We are brothers in him. And that's why it says, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. You see, because of what Jesus did in tasting death for us by the grace of God, that's the reason why Jesus is not ashamed of us. He is the one who sanctifies us. He is the one who makes us holy. We are sanctified in him. Augustine said this. I like this. God makes sons of men sons of God because God hath made the Son of God the Son of God. Of man. Back to the text in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. You see, Jesus is not ashamed to call his, us his brothers before the Father. He's not ashamed. I just want to take a moment and speak to this matter of shame because so many of us deal with shame in our lives, in one form or fashion. And really, it has its root to the fall in the garden when Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God. And then they hid. They were ashamed. Isaiah 54 is an incredible chapter about the new covenant. And uh, there is a verse here that talks about shame that I find so powerful. It speaks to me so much. It says this in verse 4, Isaiah 54, verse 4. God is speaking and says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Isaiah 54, verse 4. Would you believe it? The word shame in some form appears in that one verse five times. Do you know what's before Isaiah 54? (laughs) Isaiah 53, yeah. And what is Isaiah 53? It's the beautiful, powerful prophecy of the suffering Messiah and all that he did for us. Friends, that's what Hebrews is about. It's about him. It's about his perfection. It's about his perfect life, perfect sacrifice, perfect death, perfect resurrection. And that's why shame is removed. And he is not ashamed to call you brother, sister. He's proud of you because he loves you. And Jesus is not ashamed to say so before God the Father. God the Father loves us. Uh, 
Now, here's the result of being made one in the family of God. It says in verse 12, I will sing praise to you. You see, through this, God the Father is glorified. It's another example of how the grace of God results in God being glorified. And the second result of being made one in the family of God, the uh, 13a says this, I will put my trust in him. Jesus lives in trust, in confidence in our Father. That was the way he walked day by day, moment by moment when he was upon this earth. He lived in complete trust and dependence upon his Father. In like fashion, we live by trust and confidence in our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. And then in the second part of verse 13, it says this, Here am I and the children whom God has given me. The children whom God has given me. Where did these children come from? God the Father gave them to Jesus. In John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40, we read this. This, and Jesus is speaking and says this, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up, at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's John six thirty nine to 40. And then in John 17, verses 6 through 11, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Remember with his disciples in the upper room. And in those several verses, uh, verses 6 through 11 of John 17, Jesus makes many mentions of the ones the Father gave to Jesus. My dear friend, friend, not only is it the love of Jesus toward you, but it is the love of the Father. This is his plan. This is his design. This is his wonderful joy to bring us into family together with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we move to verses 14 and 15 there of Hebrews chapter 2, back to our text. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now let's just take this thing apart bit by bit. It is so good and so powerful. First of all, Jesus shared in flesh and and blood. Why? Because we are flesh and blood, right? It says, inasmuch as the children have partaken or share of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. And so since we were born in that way, Jesus was as the son of man, born of flesh and blood, yet without sin. Now, do you see the picture emerging of a perfect, totally complete human life for us? a perfect, totally complete sacrifice. You see, this, it was absolutely necessary that Jesus had a body because with that body, he accomplished our salvation. You see, this is the strength, the veracity of the new covenant. His flesh and blood together with who he is and what he accomplished makes it fully legitimate, legal, binding, and real. 
the force of the new covenant, his Jesus Christ himself and his very flesh and blood offered for us. Here's a key reason and purpose why Jesus became flesh and blood. It says in verse 14b that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Hey, that's one of those verses I have to say again, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, the Greek word for destroy, kardageo, means to reduce to an inactivity. Vines says this, Christ has rendered death inactive for the believer, death becoming the means of a more glorious life with Christ. The devil is to be reduced to inactivity through the death of Christ. My friends, did you hear that? The devil is reduced to inactivity through the death of Christ. This is what Jesus' death did to the devil. You see, the devil wielded death as a weapon. Jesus, through his death, conquered death and therefore seized the weapon of death from the devil, making the devil powerless. Revelation 1.18, Jesus says this, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Revelation 1.18. In uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown, it says this, As David cut off the head of Goliath with the giant's own sword, wherewith the latter was wont to win his victories, coming to redeem mankind, Christ himself, a sort of hook to destroy the devil. For in him there was his humanity to attract the devourer to him, his divinity to pierce him, apparent weakness to provoke, hidden power to transfix the hungry ravisher. You see, Jesus, through his death, snatched death away from the devil and beat that devil down. Now that's victory. And you know what, friend? That's not just victory for Jesus. That's victory for every person in Christ. And then it says this, Uh, there in uh, verse 15, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, uh, we see here a release from a lifetime subject to bondage over what? The fear of death. You know, fear is an incredible bondage. In fact, it's a lifetime of bondage. But Jesus, through what he accomplished, uh, has released us from death. Through his death, we are released. Jesus took that weapon of death and turned it against the devil, making him inactive. And what that does is that releases us from death and from a lifetime bondage of fear. Here's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 in the Amplified. It says this, And also that he might deliver and completely set free all those who through the haunting fear of death were held in bondage throughout the whole course of their lives. Did you hear it? He did this to deliver and completely set free all of us who were subject to that bondage of fear. Oh, I've got to move on, and and uh, we have to really uh, wrap things up for today. 
Jesus, through what he did in making us sons of God, putting us in the family of God and calling us brothers, continuing that thought in verses 16 through 18, it says this, that uh, Jesus is able to give aid to his brothers. Let's look at verse 16. Behold, I'm sorry, I'm over it in Isaiah. Let me get back over there in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 says this, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Another reason why Jesus was made flesh and blood was to give aid to us, the seed of Abraham. And um, first of all, the word aid is a powerful word in the Greek. It's, uh, and if you want to impress your friends and neighbors, give them this one, epilombanabi, epi. Lambanabi. What that literally means is, I've got a hold of you. I love it. <laughs> That's so good. And uh, the same uh, Greek word is used in Matthew 14. Remember when Jesus was walking on the water to Jesus and all of a sudden he started to slip and fall and, and he said, Lord, help me. And the Lord immediately reached out and grabbed a hold of him. That's the, uh, the uh, Greek word epilambanabi. It means to grab a hold of you. It, it's, we would say, I've got you. I've got you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 in the Amplified says this, For as we all know, he, Christ, did not take hold of angels, the fallen angels, to give them a helping and delivering hand. But he did take hold of the fallen descendants of Abraham to reach out to them a helping and delivering hand. Now, speaking of the seed of Abraham, that is not referring necessarily to just the Jews. It is Romans 4 verse 16 says this, therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all this seed, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And Galatians gets into this idea of the seed of Abraham being one and that is Christ and those who are in him. In other words, the joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, isn't it encouraging to know that Jesus became flesh and blood to grab a hold of us and say, I've got you to aid us who have faith in him, not in ourselves, but in him. He grabs a hold of us and he says, I've got you, brother. I've got you. You won't fall. That's what Hebrews 2.16 is all about. That's the aid that he gives to us. And then uh, it says uh, in verse 17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. You see, Jesus was made like you and me and his brothers so that he could be your merciful and faithful high priest. He had to be made like his brother, and there was no other way to do this. He had to be made with flesh and blood, yet without sin. And this qualified Jesus to be our high, faithful high priest. It says merciful, to be our merciful and faithful high priest. You know, merciful in the Bible is not just simply to mean being pitiful of someone, but it's actively compassionate. Jesus can truly say to us, look, I know what you're going through. I know the difficulty. I know the trial. I know the temptation. 
And then it says faithful. The Greek word means trustworthy. Jesus is reliable and he can get the job done. And it says that he is a high priest, chief mediator between God and man. And there's more about Jesus as high priest later on in Hebrews. In things pertaining to God, in everything that involves our relationship to God. So Jesus was made like us with flesh and blood so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest. Thank God for that. And Jesus gives aid to us as his brothers. Um, One other reason that's so important, and this is in verse 18, it says this, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Let me just back up for a moment, and I don't want to neglect this last part of verse 17, Jesus being faithful and high priest. It says, in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's a Bible word, propitiation, and it refers to an offering to satisfy wrath. What we deserved was the wrath of God. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, we're by nature objects of wrath. Well, guess what? Jesus, through what he did and his offering of himself at the cross, uh, being made sin, being made a curse, he took on that wrath and satisfied it completely. In other words, dear friends, because of his offering of himself, his flesh and blood offering of himself, we can clearly say God is no longer mad at you. Let me say it again. God is no longer mad at you. It has nothing to do with your performance, pass or fail. It has to do with the fact that Jesus, as your merciful and faithful high priest, made perfectly as the Son of Man, did it all, accomplished it all. And then here it says, getting back to verse 18, uh, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You see it? Jesus himself suffered. He suffered many things. In fact, uh, in totality, all the things that mankind suffered. And he was tempted. Dear friend, the devil had a real mark on this son of man, Jesus. And he, he dealt with Jesus directly. And yet, because Jesus suffered and he was tempted, yet without sin, Jesus is able. He has the ability to come to our aid. Now, this Greek word for aid is different than the earlier one I mentioned. This one is boetho. It means to come to the help of someone. And the idea behind boetho is the idea of someone crying out and then someone quickly coming to aid. Uh, You know, it's amazing you ladies, you moms, when, when that little one of yours gets hurt and that cry comes out, it's amazing how quickly the mother runs in response to that hurt child. That's the idea of boetho. It's running to the aid of one who is in need. And it says, who does he aid? Those who are tempted. My friend, this speaks of our present salvation, being delivered from the power of sin, uh, being delivered from a corrupt generation and world, being preserved. And then it says, because Jesus himself suffered temptation, he is able to come to our aid and to help us in our temptation. Oh, so many wonderful things here in Hebrews chapter 2. 
and uh, allow the Spirit of God just to uh, soak this in. I encourage you to read through the chapter yourself. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he has accomplished for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for such a wonderful Savior, such a wonderful Son of God, Son of Man. And through his sonship, Father, through what he did and being flesh and blood and through that flesh and blood being tempted yet without sin, in that flesh and blood able to aid us in that flesh and blood offering himself, we have our relationship with you. We can call you Father. Lord, by your Spirit, continue just to illuminate these truths to our understanding. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.